This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Tony Twist of TCM International Institute hosted a track called Disciple Making Theology Matters. Here's the track session from TCM International Institute. Welcome, everybody. Um, I appreciate uh, your interest in theology and in having more nuanced conversations about what is gospel, what do we mean when we talk about the gospel, what is faith, uh, how can we best talk about it. And um, what I want to argue for you, I guess, in this presentation is that um, the church has been imprecise in how the church has spoken about some things that are as basic as the gospel and as basic as faith, and that if we can re-nuance these and get a little closer, I think it could be something that will help drive discipleship. So that's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm all about here. Um, we're a small group, so I'm hoping that um, I, I don't think I would want to hear myself talk for 75 minutes straight uh, without uh, any interruption, so I'm hoping we can, we can be somewhat dialogical as we go, uh, and we can do some question and answer and some things like that is, I think in, in some ways, my thesis is best um, presented and defended through uh, at least some of that. Um, so uh, we're going to be talking then about uh, the gospel and about faith. So I want to start by just mentioning some things that I think uh, are popular understandings of the gospel and suggest that um, these things are not the gospel. Um, and some of them are things that are obviously very distant from the gospel. Uh, other things, um, I think they'll, they'll, they'll hit a little closer to maybe gospels uh, that we frequently heard or maybe we even preach in our own churches. Um, and there's obviously a lot of truth to them, um, but perhaps they're reduced or packaged forms uh, that are not the full gospel uh, and that we can retool and do a little bit better and get more exacting. So the gospel is not. Um, the most common, I think, um, understanding of the gospel um, when we would say the gospel is not, uh, is that the gospel is not the Romans' road. Uh, this is a very classic presentation of the gospel that begins, you know, that, uh, you know, that essentially humans are alienated from God, usually maybe starting by saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you know, but uh, here's good news for you, you know, that someone has paid the price for you and so that you can be forgiven uh, if you just believe this uh, or trust in Jesus, however that's framed, that he's your savior and your sins are really care, uh, atoned for, uh, well, then the good news is that you can have eternal life with Jesus right now. Uh, that's uh, oftentimes um, understood to be the gospel, but it confuses, I think, a, a presentation of maybe a, an important element of the gospel uh, with the gospel itself and reduces it down uh, to something it isn't, and it becomes a very me-centered story. Right? The gospel is really about me, and I'm in a pickle. Right? I'm on the road to damnation, and I need to do something about it, and so I need to just you know, um, pray this prayer, uh, and if I've done so, then I've gotten my get-out-of-jail-free card. Right? And uh, the Romans' road is oftentimes the gospel in many churches today. Um, but I don't think that it is um, the Romans' road. Um, another version that I would say that the gospel is not that we would hear, I think, frequently in churches is that at least that the, the center point of the gospel, um, and here I want to be careful because this is certainly part of the gospel, but you might hear that the gospel is all about the cross. That might be something that you hear. Um, and uh, we, we certainly would want to say that the gospel is going to involve the story of the cross, 
right? But um, but you might hear uh, uh, you might hear it taught, right? That um, that really uh, the cross is at the center of it all, and that we need really needing to go any further. Obviously, we want to say that leaves out the resurrection, uh, some other things that are quite important uh, to Christianity, and so we don't want to reduce it just down to a transaction that happens at the cross, as if all that matters is forgiveness or atonement, right? Um, there's something bigger going on there. Um, it's also not the story of the whole Bible. Sometimes um, it can kind of get blown larger uh, and say, well, uh, because we know we need to understand the context of the Bible and that, uh, that all these things are in accordance with the scriptures in some way, that the whole Bible is just sort of the gospel. It's all, all of salvation history. And so uh, the gospel is made to include uh, the creation and uh, the fall and, uh, and also you know, uh, Noah and the ark and uh, the exodus from Egypt. And uh, that gets a little sloppy and imprecise, I think, that we would all agree. Sometimes uh, people would want to say maybe the gospel is just the person of Jesus himself, right? He's the good news as it's his personal presence. He's God in the flesh. Uh, and as we encounter him, uh, well, then uh, that, that is the good news, right? Uh, that Jesus has come uh, to be in our midst and has died for our sins. It's getting warmer, I think, in terms of uh, the gospel, uh, but I still think it's too imprecise because it's a very specific story about Jesus. It's not Jesus in his person that's said to be the gospel when we inspect what the New Testament says. The New Testament never says Jesus is the gospel. Um, and so it's sloppy if we, if we think, think otherwise. Um, it's also not justification by faith. Uh, this is one I think that puzzles people as uh, I think that justification by faith, especially as this emerges in the Protestant world through Luther, right? It's the doctrine by which the church stands or falls, according to Luther. Uh, and so isn't the gospel all about justification by faith? Um, I would argue, in fact, that that's, a, a, again, a sloppy understanding of the gospel. Uh, what I'm going to argue for you as we get into it is that, in fact, justification uh, as part of the gospel refers to Jesus' own justification uh, and that we become attached to it somehow. Uh, and so whenever we talk about justification by faith, we're talking about our own justification, uh, not about Jesus's. So we don't really think about it in those terms. On the other hand, the by faith part, uh, the, the faith part actually isn't part of the gospel either. Uh, the faith is the response to the gospel, properly understood. So actually, neither one are part of the gospel. Our justification, I don't think, is actually part of the gospel when we're very precise, nor is faith. But you'll frequently hear, at least as a shorthand, that the gospel is justification by faith. Um, it's not trusting in Jesus' righteousness alone. Uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's that either, uh, rather than my works. Uh, although I would say that these contain important truths, um, that there is something not quite right about that. And I think you'll understand why when we begin to inspect what the gospel actually is. It's also not God's cosmic restoration of the whole created order. Uh, and sometimes you'll see it uh, put forward in that way too. So um, what is the gospel then? And, and how can we get a handle on it? How can we be sure that we're getting it right? What sort of methodology is going to lead us uh, in, uh, more closely to a precision here? Um, well, I would suggest the following method. First of all, I think the best thing to do is actually to look at the word gospel and uh, roots associated with it. We're talking about the word euangelion in Greek, and euangelizomai is the verbal form of that. Uh, and so we're especially looking at that, and then uh, related terms that would be closely associated with it. The word in Greek most closely associated with gospel is kerygma, would be the other word, which would refer to proclamation. Um, and so we want to we inspect that word group in particular, right? And we want to do that, especially by prioritizing the New Testament, where it seems to give the content of the gospel or to talk about what the gospel does, right? Um, and so uh, we might have a just uh, offhand reference to the gospel. It doesn't really fill out the content at all, right? We want to look at those passages that are especially going to be content heavy in talking about what the gospel is. Uh, then, of course, beyond that, we want to realize that this word was used as part of the larger Greco-Roman world. 
Um, you know, that whenever Paul said the word euangelion, when other people said the word euangelion, uh, they weren't speaking some sort of Christianese that they had just invented, right? This word uh, has an Old Testament background and also has a background in the Hellenistic world, and we'll want to talk about that a little bit. Um, so um, I could say more about methodology, but we'll stop there. Um, I, I think that uh, it's, it's probably pretty self-evident that that's the right way to go. All right, so as we move toward a more precise definition of the gospel, we're going to get there. But I want to talk again then about what faith is not uh, as a way of um, deconstructing before we begin to rebuild. Um, so what is faith not? Um, faith is, I think, especially understood popularly in our culture as something that is sort of the opposite of evidence, right? Like that God really wants us to believe, and believing something's really good, uh, and that God just sort of applauds every time we believe or we trust. Um, but on the other hand, we have evidence over here, and it's not really related. Uh, it's just like this other thing, and they're kind of different realms or different categories. Uh, this, the scholarly name for this is fideism, uh, the idea that we should believe without having any reasons or something like that. The Bible doesn't mean that at all. It never suggests anything like that in regard to what faith actually means. So it's a very popular idea in our culture, um, and so you'll, you'll find that frequently in your congregations, I think. Um, so uh, faith is also not just a leap in the dark. Um, it's a related idea to fideism, um, but uh, I think that especially under the influence of Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, an existentialist philosopher who was active in uh, the 19th century, 20, early 20th century, around that, that time, um, he really popularized the idea, especially that Abraham was a champion of the faith for doing something that was totally irrational. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. That's not reasonable at all. Uh, and so if Abraham followed him anyway, uh, then he was just making a leap in the dark apart from any reason, and therefore that's a good definition of faith. Um, I think there are all kinds of problems with that, especially that Abraham had already walked with God for a long season of life, like when he asks him to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, and, uh, and so this is actually something that's reasonable to do if God is the one who's provided Isaac, right? Through a, through a miraculous birth, right, provided Isaac, uh, and that he's asking him to sacrifice this. Uh, Abraham could reason to that, that somehow or another, God's going to do something special, right? And uh, that's, in fact, exactly what he does reason. So it's not based on no evidence at all. It's actually based on a prior covenant relationship and a long walking with God um, for Abraham. It's not reducible to a positive mindset. Faith isn't just um, feeling like happy about life, right? And as if something stressful has come your way, and uh, what God really wants you to do is just to like chill, right? As uh, too much, too much life is happening, and you'll, you'll sometimes hear people saying like that. You're like, I'm in a crisis. Like my, you know, my my dishwasher just broke, and my a daughter has lice and what, you know whatever it could possibly go wrong right it's gone wrong and uh and your friend comes alongside and says you know you just need to have faith and what she's saying is just take a chill pill um uh, the bible doesn't define faith that way at all but it, it's so frequently used that way in our culture isn't it um it's also not equivalent to belief in terms of our ordinary english language ways of speaking about belief so we wouldn't want to say that um, faith is about just sort of smashing information into our head um, uh, we'll oftentimes have these ideas of, of, co of very cognitive or heady ideas about faith uh, as if somehow what God really wants, like God really wants you uh, to know that Jesus is the Son of God, to know that he's the Savior, to, to know that uh, there are three persons but only one God, right? Uh, and God wants you to take all that information in your head, boom, and when you do it, like you're saved or something like that. Uh, and so it can, it, there can be very cognitive ideas about faith. Um, and we want to we safeguard ourselves and others against that kind of confusion. 
Um, so as, as part of that then, um, I think that I want to make an argument for you that faith is something uh, bigger than that. Um, it involves the idea of trust. That is the right central concept. And study after study has shown, uh, as people have looked at the ancient world and studied the, the word group, the pistis word group is the word group we're talking about here uh, that uh, would be the primary word group for faith. Um, and uh, they find that trust is consistently in view. Um, so I think there's um, a mountain of evidence which suggests this is true. Um, and we see this clearly in the Bible. Uh, what I want to argue is that, in fact, though, that um, this pistis word group, there's a, a large semantic domain here. If we want to say trust is sort of the overarching category, uh, we can have different kinds of ways of expressing trust uh, that are sort of sub-circles here. Uh, and so we might want to talk about some portions of trust do have to do with believing, right? Like in order to trust something, if I, if I am going to trust, you know, uh, my wife, uh, you know, in, in regard to a certain kind of situation, uh, and I've asked her to take care of it, like some, knowing something about her character, having a relationship with her, believing that she's actually um, going to do it because she said she's done it, she's going to do it. Like there is a believing dimension to it. It's not like it's cognitively empty, right? And so that we really want to talk about that as one part. Um, a, a part that we don't talk about as often, though, uh, that I think is very important uh, is the idea of allegiance that's actually um, part of the semantic domain is what scholars would call it, or the part of the, the proper field of pistis. Um, and so uh, the argument that I'm making as I sort of bring these things together is that when we actually reframe what the gospel is uh, and we, we become more aware of the range of meaning of what pistis can involve, um, then we should see that, um, that, uh, that the best way that we could summarize the gospel is that Jesus has become the, uh, the forgiving king or the atoning king. So um, uh, I'm going to give you a more expanded form of the gospel, but I, I think we do need shorthands. Uh, and so we want to say Jesus has become the atoning king. All right, so that's the, the argument that I want to make. And that what does it mean then to have faith in Jesus? It means to give allegiance to him as that king. Believing that he is the atoning king who has died for our sins, but that his, his, the gospel story reaches this climax with him coming to sit at the right hand of God and being enthroned. All right, let's, let's look at some content here um, that, uh, that would support this. Uh, you all have your Bibles? I hope, or you have a phone with your Bible on it, or I think there was actually even Bibles in this room, as I saw them somewhere, at least. I think they're over there on the wall. If you want to grab a Bible, uh, you can. If you don't have one handy, I realize it's a conference, and you may not be able to you know, come packing with all your heavy artillery uh, that you wish you could. Um, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, let's look at this very, very famous passage uh, that defines the gospel. This is probably the clearest articulation of the gospel that we have that's content-heavy. It gives us uh, quite a bit to chew on about what the gospel is. Um, and as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins by saying that, in fact, I want to remind you about what I, I preached to you, this gospel. It's something you received. So we find out that, um, uh, that in fact, it's already something that Paul uh, had received uh, and is transmitting to them, and so it was already traditional in Paul's day and age. 
uh, the gospel which you received and which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to it, unless you believed in vain. Notice even this language of if you hold fast to it, right, uh, suggests that there needs to be a certain tenacity uh, about how we're engaging this gospel. Uh, it's not something that is an easy believism, right? Just believe this factoid uh, that Jesus died for your sins and therefore you're good to go for the rest of your life. Um, but there's a certain amount of ten- tenacity that's involved in this holding on. All right, so he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is where we find out that it was traditional even for Paul, right? He's, uh, this was the common gospel of the early church, uh, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brethren, uh, and he continues on linking other people and then himself ultimately in the chain of appearances. Notice then also in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So he makes this, again, this assertion that this is the common property of the church, right? Uh, all these people, he says, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Um, so we see that this is not an idiosyncratic gospel that Paul sort of created. Sometimes you'll see that accusation uh, in uh, some not-so-good biblical scholarship, uh, where there'll, there'll be this claim that, well, Paul was just sort of this weird guy with his own weird gospel, and he, he was really not getting along with James, and so on and so forth, right? Um, I think that we see that the evidence actually suggests otherwise. Well, what would we know about the gospel if this is all we had? I mean, if this was it, like, if, you were, if this was the gospel and you were going to go out and preach, what, what are you preaching to people? You can actually answer that question. This is not purely rhetorical. Okay, it's a, it's a story of Jesus' life. An outline of Jesus' life. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And so, um, other things. What do you notice? Yeah, so there's, a, there's a, a, a certain sequence to that, right? And this is all said to be in accordance with the scriptures, right? So his death for our sins, right, it's, it's something that's to our advantage. It's for us. Uh, that's obviously something we seize on and we put it as premier, right? And I think that it's absolutely part of the gospel. It should be premier. Uh, but I think there's some other things we would want to notice too. But this is actually something that was in accordance with the scriptures. So uh, it, it somehow or another fulfilled an old, an old Testament pattern. I think Paul has in view here a lot of passages, not just one. Um, I think he has in view uh, Isaiah 53. Uh, he has in view Psalm 22, Psalm 69, passages that feature especially a righteous sufferer uh, who dies uh, and who uh, is then subsequently vindicated by God. In all of those passages, it's not just that this person dies. Uh, this person is actually rescued by God on the other side of death uh, in a number of these Old Testament passages, and they're fascinating. right? Um, so uh, we see that uh, the burial then, like why does he even mention that? Isn't death enough? Like, uh, isn't that imply burial? Probably, to, probably to, to, to intensify that this was a real death, right? Uh, that this was not uh, like a pseudo-death in some way, but the burial seems designed to confirm it. Uh, and then we see then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, again, that idea of a, a whole scriptural pattern and Jesus fulfilling it, uh, probably with those same passages and views that, that would have to do with his righteous suffering and then rescue on the other side. And then again, we kind of have a similar thing, just like the burial confirms the reality of uh, Jesus' death, what do we have confirming the reality of his resurrection? Yeah, yeah, he appeared. He appeared to many witnesses, right? Um, so uh, we have a good start, right, if this was our gospel and this was all we had. Let's flip over to Romans. Um, and uh, this is Romans 1, verses 2 through 4. 
uh, is our other place where I think we have our, our really just um, best articulation of the gospel. And this is one that is um, a little more challenging. Romans 1, uh, 3, 3, 3 and 4 is where we're going to especially focus attention, but we're going to actually go to 16 and 17. But I think there's some important things to see in Romans 1, 1. Uh, through, well, we'll start one one. Uh, but Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, uh, this is then Paul uh, uh, mentioning that he's actually a slave of this Jesus, the Christ, who's the Messiah or the King, right? Or a, a slave or a servant, called to be an apostle. So he's an ambassador that's proclaiming the good news of this King in some way, set apart for the gospel of God. And here's uh, where we begin to get a definition of the gospel and think through similar questions. If this was all we had, what's the gospel we're sharing? Uh, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The gospel concerning his son, uh, who was descended from David according to the flesh and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I'm going to continue on um, as I think there's something important that often gets left out here. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, which would include you, uh, who belong to Jesus Christ. Um, so, all right, if we were to think through this, in verse 2, what is it that we, we find that's really important about the gospel? Yeah, it's promised, right? God didn't even just announce it in advance. It's not like he didn't just give a prophecy, like, hey, this is going like, to happen in the future. He actually obligated himself to us in some way, right? That he actually said, I'm going to do this for you, and he takes risk upon himself in so doing, Right? as God is the one who then puts himself out there for us uh, in giving us this gospel. So it's not just like a neat prophecy of something that might happen in the future, right? But in fact, it's something that God had obligated to his own people to bring about. Uh, and so this uh, connects in interesting ways with the First Corinthians passage and the emphasis on something being in accordance with the scripture, right? So we see this is obviously very important to Paul as he thinks about what the gospel is, that it's, that it's intimately connected to the Old Testament. Uh, is the gospel we preach today intimately connected to the Old Testament? Right? Um, that might be something that we uh, that uh, that might we might be seeing as part of the problem with the Jesus died for my sins. Right? If we reduce the gospel down to that, we begin to see that we're we're out of line with what Paul actually says the gospel is in in, in important ways. All right. Um, here it gets a little more complicated, where it says the gospel concerning his son. And then my translation says, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Probably most of your translations have something similar, who was born um, from David or like something along those lines. Um, yeah, actually in Greek, I don't know if any of you have any Greek training or have Greek in front of you, um, it actually says something a little different than that, and I think the subtlety is important. So I'm going to read in, in Greek. It says, peri tu huyu autu tu genomenu experimentos dawid katasarka. Uh, and so this is concerning his son. And then the two genomenu there, um, actually the word genomenu comes from the Greek verb genomai, which is the verb to be or to become. Uh, it's a very, very common verb. Uh, it actually doesn't mean born. It very rarely means it. It can uh, it just very rarely mean that in classical Greek, but it's an extremely unusual usage uh, by the time we get to the New Testament era. I actually, uh, as I was doing research for a, a journal article some time ago, I looked at all the instances of genomai in the New Testament, 667 insta instances of it. Only one time did it mean born, uh, probably, uh, and that's it. Um, and so it, it must, it's much more frequently means to be or to come into being. Um, so uh, his son then who came into being, and then uh, in Greek it actually says ex dawid. 
and this means it could be from the seed of David. Uh, I would like to make the argument that it actually means by means of the seed of David, and that's a very common use of ak again, uh, as it's oftentimes instrumental. A few of you who know Greek are, are shaking your head going, yeah, I can roll with this. Um, why do I think it means that? Um, well, partly because it picks up a parallel in the second passage where, ex, uh, where by, me, by the resurrection from the dead is clearly instrumental. So it, there's a kind of confirming parallelism there. But also in Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, Paul speaks about, uh, about the son be, uh, uh, coming into being by means of a woman under law. And so it's actually the same, we find the same sequence. Paul substitutes out uh, uh, and uses genomai again, it's the same verb, and it mentions uh, gunakos, uh, by means of, the, of a woman, right? And so here it parallels very nicely with exactly what we see, same verb and the ek language and the spermatos dawid. So I would understand this actually probably to be a reference to, to Mary, who was actually a Davidite. Uh, Mary was uh, the seed of David. And so that he came into being by means of Mary would be kind of what's underneath the surface here. Uh, And this, of course, is speaking about the fulfillment of the promises to David in light of that too, right? And that's why he mentions it by the seed of David because it it then echoes the Davidic promises. And then it says katasarka. And and so that we would understand it according to the flesh or in as much as it pertains to the flesh. So what we discover is Paul's given the most precise description of the incarnation you could possibly give. Right? We have Jesus, who's already declared to be the Son of God. Right? Uh, it's the gospel concerning his Son. This is, refers to God's Son, right? uh, who was descended from David, according to, uh, uh, not descended, uh, but who came into being by means of the seed of David, right? but only in as much as it pertains to his flesh. He was already pre existing as the Son of God. Right? Uh, and so he couldn't have been born. Uh, at least Paul wouldn't have wanted to use that language. He's trying to avoid it. So instead of the normal word for born, genao, he uses the word genomai, which is a slightly different word to talk about him coming into being, but only in as much as it pertains to his flesh, because he's the eternal son. Right? And so this is a very precise statement, actually, of the incarnation. Uh, at least that's how I would understand this text. So uh, something that oftentimes we don't think about in relationship to the gospel. Right? It seems central to Paul, the incarnation. Whenever we're speaking the gospel in the church, do we mention the incarnation? Uh, where does it fit into our gospel presentations? And then let's look at the next clause. Uh, the next clause then, uh, it says, and designated son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, this, uh, in, in Greek, again, just a little bit here for you, tu horisthentos uh, and this is the, the one who was appointed then, son of God, and uh, there's a question about how to connect the in power. Uh, does it connect to the verb, to the appointment, or does it connect to the, to the title of son of God? Uh, I think for a variety of reasons, uh, having to do with parallelism and, uh, and whatnot, uh, I think it's very, uh, a much stronger translation to understand that all as a title so that we should understand this to be the title Jesus has received. He's been appointed or designated Son of God in power. This is all his title. Why? Because he's, uh, this is a statement of his enthronement at the right hand of God. Uh, so before he's Son of God, he preexists as Son of God. He takes on human flesh in the incarnation. And then he's seated at the right hand of God, and he's still the Son of God. But what is he now? The Son of God in power. He's actually ruling now as the Son of God. So this is, uh, this is a statement about him receiving his throne. When we're talking about Jesus the Messiah, and it means Jesus the king, and as an earthly king, does he like, actually have a throne and actually rule anybody? Like in Revelation, they had him off for a scroll. Yeah. Where 
That's right. Yeah, and so we do see that, that kind of imagery in terms of Jesus' enthronement after this has happened, right? But the idea would be that after his resurrection then, or by means of his resurrection, he seems to see the resurrection being the event that triggers his enthronement, so that he then is appointed son of God in power. So he attains to a new office where he's now ruling at the right hand of God the Father. Um, and so we see then that the focus is really in two places as Paul defines the gospel here, on the incarnation and then on Jesus' enthronement. Uh, and then in verse 5, oh, and we shouldn't miss in verse 4, sorry, Jesus Christ our Lord. We can, we can slide right by that, right? This means Jesus the King, right? Jesus the Messiah, who's our Lord. Notice twice he mentions language that would suggest his sovereignty, Right? This, is, uh, this is clearly something on Paul's mind. Right? Jesus is the great king, uh, as we've seen also in 1 Corinthians 15. Right? It's Jesus is Lord, uh, very important there as well. Um, and then so then, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith uh, for the sake of his name among the nations. Uh, we get a very important statement that is, again, just missed, I think, so often as we think about the gospel. And the gospel has a very specific purpose here. Uh, Paul says, we received grace and apostleship. This means, his apostleship means he's going to go out as an ambassador of this king. Why? What's the purpose of the gospel then? Uh, it doesn't say, like, to save souls, right? <laughs> what does it say? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So the purpose of the gospel is actually the obedience of faith as that's going to go worldwide to the nations. So the idea isn't just uh, that uh, the purpose of the gospel is somehow to, to save the individual sinner, right? It's a global mission that's in view here, and the mission involves an obedience of faith. Um, and here we, we begin to think about the language of pistis, right? When it talks about the obedience of, of, of faith here, uh, in Greek then we have that word pistis, uh, well, it's the, uh, the, 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 in, in Greek, it's eis hupakuein pisteos, uh, the obedience of faith. And uh, uh, we can think about the different kinds of relationships where we talk about something like um, the obedience of faith. All right, there's different kinds of relationships that we can have here between the, uh, the two nouns involved, obedience and faith. Those of you who have done some Greek, this is called a genitive relationship, right? Uh, and there are different ways we can talk about it. But the most frequent use of the genitive uh, is, is just qualitative. It's usually just descriptive. Uh, that's the most general category that we have. Uh, and so if we were to understand this in that way as, and take the most common use of the genitive, as it's almost always qualitative, it would just mean the obedience that somehow is characterized by faith. Uh, or is qualified by faith in some way. So we could gloss this, the obedience that's characterized by faith. It would be the ordinary way of thinking about it. And so that could be then, if we're thinking about the full range of meaning, the obedience that's characterized by allegiance, uh, as, uh, as we would want to think about then. Uh, what does it mean then to, to proclaim this Jesus Christ as Lord and Christ? Right? What does it mean to respond to the gospel? What's the purpose of it at all, uh, in, the whole, in the whole of it? The idea then we might want to say the, the purpose of it, if we were to gloss this all together, is actually really allegiance. The obedience of faith is quite close to the idea of loyalty, right? an obedience that's characterized uh, by uh, faithfulness or fidelity or allegiance or loyalty. All those words uh, might be involved in this. All right, so uh, we, we've spent a little bit of time on, um, on the gospel. Any, I'm going to stop here just because I've been going for quite a while and, uh, and see what, what time is this track in just so I'm, like, aware. Is it at 15 after? Okay, so we have, like, 40 minutes left. Let's, let's, let's see if you have any questions uh, thus far or anything that you want me to 
develop or go go on about or whatever it might be? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that we see this kind of similar energy in our gospel proclamations and acts. You can think about it, you know, Peter's Pentecost speech, you know, in, in Acts 2-3. Like the climax of that is that, you know, is that this Jesus has become Lord and Christ, right? Uh, and that's really like the, the energy, like the whole story that Peter's telling about Jesus, it reaches its sort of like energy-packed moment with this proclamation that this Jesus, you know, who you crucified, he's been made Lord and Christ, right? And, uh, and so the idea is that, Peter, that Peter's making a statement about his enthronement, right? Uh, that something new has happened, right? Now he's ruling at the right hand of God. And so we see that as they're invited to respond to the gospel, it's a gospel that's sent its energy towards Jesus' enthronement. So is the gospel that we're proclaiming, right? Is it really aimed in that way? Is it, is it aimed towards proclaiming Jesus' enthronement and then demanding a response in light of that? If Jesus has become the king, who should we be, right? Um, well, we should be the ones who, who give him homage, right, who bow the knee. Uh, we realize he's a servant king and a good king um, and that he's inviting us into his kingship even in some ways as citizens of his kingdom. Um, but nevertheless, we bow the knee, right? We surrender. Uh, and I think that helps us to think through why um, salvation and discipleship and the gospel, uh, how closely they relate to one another. Right? If we're not preaching this gospel, that Jesus has become the king, and that a proper response to him, or even the whole purpose of the gospel, is an obedience of, of faith, right? uh, that we might, we might gloss as an allegiance, and I think that we, um, we're not tapping into uh, the full energy of the gospel. Um, other questions, Douglas? Sure. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so he's, uh, Douglas is bringing up the fact that this has a pretty powerful um, uh, overtones in terms of the larger Greco-Roman world. And, and I get into that in the book, talking about, um, about how, uh, as part of imperial propaganda, especially the emperors, uh, a favorite title for them was certainly Lord. They also used the title Soter, Savior. Um, even language of peace that we would think is associated with the gospel, arene. Uh, this language is also part of imperial propaganda. Um, and so uh, whenever uh, we have this proclamation of Jesus as Lord or the king, right, um, we should realize uh, that this is something that would have uh, been under, well understood within uh, Paul's world as something that would involve uh, a, a loyalty kind of arrangement between the emperor, who's the great patron, Right, and the whole structure of Roman society, Caesar Augustus or whoever the Caesar happens to be, uh, he's the great patron, and underneath him are various clients who have their own clients who have their own clients, and clients need to show loyalty to the patron above them. That's like the, the, the chief duty and to honor them, uh, and that then, the, then the, the patron will give their blessings to them. And Caesar Augustus then is the great lord, is the one who dispenses the most benefits, uh, is sort of the idea, and therefore deserves the most loyalty. So we kind of see that going on with Paul's language here, that Jesus is the king of kings, right? The one to whom the ultimate loyalty is, uh, is owed and who gives the maximal benefits. So it makes sense in Paul's world, too, to see this as uh, uh, related to allegiance. Um, yeah, other, any other questions for, for now? I have, I have, there's lots of directions I can go with my material here, um, but sure. You mentioned earlier that uh, the justification statement may not be about us being justified as much as Jesus being justified. Yes, yes, uh, you're, you're, you're certainly on the right track. Let's, let's, uh, it's a good segue, unless, unless someone has a pressing one, 
um, we'll maybe jump to Romans 1, 16 to 17 as it's going to begin to deal with some of those, uh, those, those further questions. Um, and we could also go to Romans, you know, 3.21 through 26. But let's start, let's start with Romans 1.16 through 17. Uh, and this is, of course, what gets top billing as people are doing a study of Romans, right? This is Paul's thesis statement. And so uh, oftentimes there's a rush to get here and a failure to see that Paul's actually already defined the gospel for us. And I think that um, we do well to pay attention to what Paul's already said about the gospel and, and let this build on what he's already said. All right, Paul says, Then I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, He through faith is righteous shall live. Uh, I'm uh, again giving you a translation um, that I think we could nuance in a variety of ways. Um, so uh, what's the really important thing that's added here uh, that we don't learn about um, in Paul's previous articulation of the gospel? That if, if the gospel was only content, right, in Romans 1, and what all we learn about is it's about the incarnation and the enthronement, what might that leave out? Uh, and that we maybe get more information about here that could be very important, important for us. Yeah, it's the power of God for salvation, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a message that actually causes an effect in the world, right? We learn something really important about it there, uh, and that it actually uh, is uh, one that causes a saving effect. So it's the power of God for salvation. And then we have uh, for, uh, for everyone uh, who has faith, is what my translation is, it's pontitopis juanti in Greek. Uh, and what I would want you to, to do is hold back on that. Uh, my translation is better, I think, for with everyone who has faith. Often it just says everyone who believes, right? That's probably what a number of your translations say. Remember that b- behind this we have this pistis word group, right? Uh, this is just the verbal form of it. We have the pistuo. Uh, this pen isn't as good. Uh, we have the pistuo verb. Uh, is, uh, you know, the verb that we see here. And so you can see it's closely related to the, the pistis word. Um, but uh, pistuo, uh, then, as we, um, as we think about the relation, the problem is we don't have a good word in English that does the work we need, right? As, um, as that's why we, we use believe or trust, because we don't have a faithing verb. So, uh, you know, translators are having to make choices to try to communicate the idea, but they can't, they can't let you see that, that, that these, it, it masks how closely related Paul's language of pistis is uh, with the believing idea. Uh, and so that it, it, it kind of puts the wrong cognitive ideas in our head, I think, often. So you might want to think about it this way. I, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who does the pistis action. All right, let's hold, let's, let's hold reservation about what that pistis action is. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, so uh, we, we do wonder, like it seems like Paul is saying that the righteousness of God somehow connects to the power of God for salvation. Uh, he doesn't spell that out. There are different theories about the righteousness of God and how it attaches to us and what it is. Um, and we'll, we'll maybe have time to get into that a little bit more. But um, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then here we have uh, in Greek um, uh, what it actually says is ekpistaos. Sorry, I'm writing in Greek. I should write it in English. In English. Ekpistaos. And then ace. Oops, I keep writing in Greek. Sorry. Ace uh, piston. Ekpistaos ace piston. Um, and so this gets translated a variety of ways, um, this ekpistaos ace piston. Um, what do some of your translations have for that uh, where, where it says, my translation there says through faith for faith? Uh, what do some of your others have? By faith for 
Five faiths from first to last. That's the NIV, I believe, right? Mine has from faithfulness to four faiths, but then it also has translated notes that you can switch those two. Who has that? Which one is that? Contemporary English Bible. Oh, good for them. That's good. Others? Anyone? Beginning in faith and ending in faith. Beginning in faith and ending in faith. What that what what those what the NIV and what that translation are trying to do is suggest rhetorical entirety. Uh, the idea is like from first to last, or that uh, that ek to ace could mean like you know from this to that sort of idea, um, and it, it does sometimes mean that. Uh, but there is uh, there's compelling evidence that would suggest that's not the right way to go, and it, that compelling evidence is in, actually in Romans three twenty two, where we have the same phrase, uh, but it's 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 just very slightly different, where Paul uses the language of dia uh, pistaos ace pontus. Uh, and so the dia is instrumental there. It means through the, probably the faithfulness of Jesus and then for all those uh, who do the faith action. But it's a similar idea. It's the idea of, of by and then for. And so that's part of the reason why I think that ek pistos, ace piston, is probably best translated as uh, it could be through faith, by faith, uh, and then for faith. Uh, so I think this should be by, we might even say allegiance. Let's just use that word for now. I'm trying to convince you of it. Uh, and then for allegiance. All right, what if we were to translate it that way? All right, and we were to understand uh, this language then of pistis then as by allegiance for allegiance. All right, so uh, then it would read as, as follows then. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for all those who give allegiance uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, it is the, uh, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed uh, by allegiance for allegiance, as it is written uh, he, through, he who through allegiance is righteous shall live. Um, that last bit then uh, is, is a very famous sort of chestnut as it's obviously a citation from Habakkuk. Um, and scholars have batted around um, various possibilities of, of what it might mean. Um, I think that uh, to cut to the chase, I think the most likely solution here is that Paul understands Jesus to be the righteous one, the faithful one where it says uh, the, the, one who, the one who through faith lives is righteous, or whatever it might say. In Greek, it's ha dikaios ek zesatai. The ha dikaios there uh, means uh, it's, it's the ha means the, and the dikaios means righteous one. So it's the, the righteous one by faith or by faithfulness will live, is what it says. And there are, are good reasons for understanding ha dikaios there, the righteous one, to be a reference to Jesus, but I'd also argue it could also be a reference to us and that Paul actually probably has both in view. Um, and so if this is the case, then what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the righteous one, that Jesus was faithful to God. He showed his allegiance to God the Father. And what happened? He lived, right? God raised him from the dead. So we see this idea of the, the righteous one lives through his faithfulness or through his fidelity to God the Father. So we'll refer to Jesus' faithful actions in pursuing the path of the cross, right? And then how about then uh, uh, for us? Then the idea would be that we do the same, that we through union with Jesus, that we as we pursue the path of the cross in union with him, right, uh, then we also follow that same pattern. We will live because of our faithfulness to Jesus the King uh, as we then are united to his life and his death and his pattern of life. So then if, as we begin to put this all together then, I would argue that then the ek pista os, uh, ace piston, the by faith, for faith, the by faith then refers to Jesus' faithfulness, his allegiance to God the Father. Uh, so when it says uh, uh, that in it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith, 
This would be by Jesus' faithfulness or his allegiance to God the Father in pursuing the path of the cross. And then it was for faith. It was for our faithfulness to, uh, to Jesus. So that it was purposed so that we could have allegiance to Jesus the King. Uh, and so that it then articulates Jesus' pattern of life and our union with his pattern of life uh, as we think about uh, the gospel here. So as part of that, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed through all of this. Uh, through this faithful action of Jesus, then that stimulates our allegiance to Jesus. Uh, and so we have to get into a conversation about what the righteousness of God um, actually means. Why don't I stop, though, and uh, you may have searching questions, or you may want to press me. I'm going to press you on the righteousness of God. Uh-huh. Okay, this is, this is N.T. Wright's view, uh, that the righteousness of God means the covenant faithfulness of God. Uh, and this is something that's being hotly debated right now in current biblical studies. Um, and it's been hotly debated ever since the Protestant Reformation, right? As Martin Luther argued, uh, that it's not the act of, uh, that he had been taught, he says, by all of his teachers, that it meant the, that the righteousness of God meant the active righteousness of God, meaning uh, that God is a just judge, and what does a just judge have to do? A just judge has to judge fairly, and if we're sinners, we're toast, right? Uh, and so God's justice demands that he met out sin. Uh, excuse me, not met out sin, met out co- consequences for our sin, that he judge us. So Luther was in deep anxiety about this, right? Deep fear as he realized that he was a sinner and that he was due for a fair bit of, uh, of God's uh, justice as that would be applied to him and that he wouldn't, it wouldn't be a kind of a painful operation for him. So he's busy doing penance uh, as a way of trying to, uh, you know, to, um, uh, to uh, atone for his sins and uh, to participate in uh, in, in that system in a way that he will not have to experience so much of the judgment of God later, but he's grumbling in his heart and is angry at God, right? Um, all right, and so then meanwhile, while reading in Greek, he comes to discover that the righteousness of God might mean something else. It might mean a gift that God gives to us. Uh, and so that he calls this in the passive idea. And the idea behind this is almost of a garment, right? Um, I would take off my coat, but I have my microphone on. Uh, but you can imagine me being all nasty and dirty, you know, which I probably am. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, that God then gives me his righteousness as, as this white, clean garment that covers me over. Uh, and this is Luther's idea of imputed righteousness, right? That it's, uh, it's that we're still, we're sinners, we're nasty, uh, but nevertheless, we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so that when God looks upon us, he sees Christ's righteousness, which is sort of a shield uh, that then prevents him from seeing my filth. And so as God judges, he in fairness can judge that I'm innocent because I've been covered by the righteousness of Christ. Um, and so that I am therefore out of any kind of danger. So N.T. Wright has come along and stirred up the pot uh, by questioning all that and saying that, in fact, the righteousness of God doesn't mean that. It means the covenant faithfulness of God. What's the difference? Um, Well, the covenant faithfulness of God is a a lot more like what Luther was reacting against, right? It's a lot closer to the idea that God is being faithful to his covenant promises, uh, and as part of the covenant promises, he has to be a just judge. So it's clo- a lot closer to that idea that Luther was reacting against, although he, Wright has his own nuances on it. Um, I myself have done my own study of the righteousness of God, and I think that uh, N.T. Wright's wrong. I, I, do, I don't think that he's on the right track there. Um, I think that uh, the righteousness of God is something communicated to us, uh, and so that, the, that it is... 
There are statements where it does involve God's justice and that, it, that that's what's foregrounded, that God is the just judge. Um, but I think it has a communicative dimension, uh, that God actually um, gives his righteousness to us as a gift. Um, we can walk through some of those texts if you want. Um, it's up to you. I could, I, 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 could, I could do a whole variety of things. We can also talk about the kingdom of God, as I have a, a lot of things I could talk about with regard to that. Um, yeah, go, well, just let's take the question first, though. I, I have a question in the end of the... Football team. Yeah, or their football team. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think that I think that it's not as hopeless as it would seem because um, because of Netflix, um, people watch all kinds of historical pieces, right? And so people yeah. do have they do have a pretty good awareness, I think, of the concept of king. I don't think it's uh, it's in every fairy tale, you know. I mean, I, there's a sense in which we haven't. What'd you say? At least on TV. That's true. Yeah, that's true. We do have to fight against that and, and make sure that we realize that Jesus is the good king, right, and that he's a servant king. And, and that's certainly um, what I was taught in history class Yeah, was that kings are all bad, which is why the United States doesn't have a king. Yeah. No, absolutely. You're right. I mean, it's an uphill battle in terms of, I think, like reclaiming the metaphor, but I think we just have to use the metaphor as God gives us. I mean, we can't, we're not just like free to invent our own. Yeah. Right? When God gives us the metaphor of a shepherd, we might be like, well, shepherds in our culture are like dirty and smelly. I don't know if they really are. But we still have to say, like, well, that's the metaphor God gives. And we have to try to say, well, he's not a dirty, smelly one. He's actually like a really good one. You know? And uh, we have to do something like that with kingship where we, we, we're not authorized just to invent new metaphors. So I think that we, you know, we have to take it seriously. And I, I, again, like, we, we begin to probe into mystery whenever we we begin to think about uh, how the metaphor actually corresponds to the reality. I mean, Jesus really is the king. Is it just a metaphor? Like, they, the idea of just a metaphor is a bad a, a way of even talking, right? Because metaphors aren't like that. There's always an element of continuity and discontinuity in every metaphor. You know, if I say that you're like a lion, well, there's some ways you are and some ways you aren't, right? Um, and so we can press that with any kind of metaphor or simile that we use. Um, yeah, go ahead. Absolutely it is. And, um, yeah, I would say that, that part of the reason we've embraced the idea that Jesus is Savior to the exclusion of uh, his sovereignty as a king is partly because of confused ideas about grace and works or, or fears around those, yeah. right? That we, uh, we don't want to suggest that um, we actually need to, you know, um, surrender to this king because, well, isn't that a work? And that's like going too far. He's just the savior and I don't need to worry about it because he's got it all under control and praise be to God, it's not me. And, you know, and, and so uh, I think that it's because of fears around, around um, nuance and grace and works that we really have a hard time with this metaphor. Um, Can you dance there? Uh, well, sure. That really is, how do you teach this um, concept Oh, I, I, I have been accused of it, and so I, I'm... Uh, how, do you, how do you try to respond to that in nuance? Yeah. yeah. If you're teaching what Willard would call it, the gospel of the, the lordship of the kingdom, you're going you're gonna to hear salvation. Yeah, Douglas has a comment first. Sure, go ahead. You could just quote the last few words of Peter's Pentecost sermon. It's made him Lord and Christ. Yeah. Whom you crucify, but it's the, it's the Lord and the Savior. That you can't separate them. Yes. If you separate them, you destroy both. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's certainly true, um, and and I think that we I think that, it, that that certainly I think that we can pull out whole reams of biblical evidence, right? That would suggest that this is the true the truth of the matter is that Jesus is the King, and we need to submit to Him as such. And I think we all know that, right? 
Um, but as we begin to get into conversations or as people press us like uh, about the issues of grace or whatever, um, what kinds of responses can we give? Um, there's been a really, really helpful book written recently. It's just out, and uh, you always have to be careful about sniffing after the latest, greatest new thing. In this case, um, I assure you, it's very, very solid scholarship, and I think it will stand the test of time. It's John Barclay's book, Paul and the Gift. Um, I, Paul and the Gift is the name of it by John Barclay. Unfortunately, it's expensive. Um, it's, a, it's a monograph that I think was released in 2015. And my own expertise is Paul's theology, and uh, I read a fair bit in Paul's theology. And I can, I can say that without reservation, I think it's the most important book that's been written in the last 40 years. Uh, it's going to be that important. Um, it's going to be as important as E.P. Sanders' uh, book was, I believe, um, which for those of you who are familiar with biblical studies, um, yeah. It, that's saying a lot. There's a lot of books written in Paul, and it's that important. Um, what he does is he actually breaks down the concept of grace, and he breaks down the concept of grace into six different components and helps us to see that grace is maybe a little bit more complicated than we think it is. Um, and this is actually really helpful because we tend, to, we tend to define grace in one way and one way only, and what he shows is that, in fact, in antiquity it was defined in more than one way. Uh, and, in, and in Paul's letters, you can show that Paul actually understands it in multifaceted ways. And, um, and actually, there's some contemporary ideas about grace that don't match ancient ideas. Uh, and he pulls all this apart for us as a way of kind of nuancing this concept of grace further. So he actually breaks grace down into six concepts. Grace just means gift. Uh, and um, some of the confusion can happen as we, as we abstract this too much and we make it like a concept of grace. Um, we should remember that for Paul, most of the time, uh, the gift is something specific. It is the Christ gift or the event of, uh, or the Christ events, we might say, gift. Uh, all those things that are associated with salvation that come through Jesus, so his death, his resurrection, uh, the blessings that come through union with him, that's the Christ gift, right? And uh, when Paul talks about grace, he mainly has that in view. Um, the concept of grace, though, uh, Barclay breaks down. I don't know if I'll be able to remember all six of them off the top of my head because I wasn't really ready to talk about this, but uh, one thing we could talk about, one way of perfecting um, grace would be to talk about the, the size of the gift, right? If I give you a really big gift, is that better than a small one? Like if I was to give you a bag of popcorn on the one hand or a Ferrari on the other, which one are you going to choose, right? Yeah, you want the Ferrari. So one way uh, we could talk about uh, the per, uh, 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 gift is the size of it, that a, a perfect gift is a really big one, right? Uh, and uh, we would want to say, obviously, the Christ gift is a really big one. Um, another way we could talk about it would be uh, the language he uses is the priority of the gift, priority. Um, and so this has to do with uh, giving a gift at the right time. Uh, if, uh, let's say you really need a bike and uh, you really need it because you have to bike in the, you know, the Boston Biking Marathon, which doesn't exist, I just made up, um, and uh, I give you a gift of a bike one day after the marathon. Didn't do a very good job, right? So an ideal gift is one that's given at advance, uh, at the ideal advance time. One of the things Barclay shows is that some traditions perfect this in ways that Paul does not, or go beyond Paul's ways of perfecting it. In particular, he would argue the Calvinist tradition has perfected this by pushing this all the way back, uh, and so that at least individual salvation uh, is pressed back uh, before the foundations of the earth, before foundations, right? Um, and uh, that, in fact, Paul does not perfect in this way, that he, he might perfect that idea for the church, 
but does not perfect it for individuals. And so individuals, uh, the idea that individuals have been elected before time began uh, is not something that is particularly near and dear to Paul's heart, even if it is near and dear to some systems of theology's heart today. So he's, he's doing some helpful things in showing like uh, that Paul does uh, talk about the priority of the gift, but he doesn't perfect it in the same way that at least some of Paul's later, interp- later interpreters have perfected it. Uh, what does Paul perfect most? Uh, most uh, the unmerited nature of a gift. Uh, and this is what we tend to think about. This is We'll put a gold star by this. Uh, that We think uh, this is the most important um, because this is how we tend to think about what grace is. This is the only definition of grace we usually have, right, is that it's something that God gives that we don't deserve. Um, and this is what Paul emphasizes. Paul is all over this again and again and again. There's nothing that we can do to merit God's grace. Uh, a fourth one is uh, how effective the grace is, or the gift, excuse me, how effective. Uh, if I give you a gift of a bike, but you can't ride it, it's not a good gift, right? It didn't help you out one bit. Um, and uh, so uh, how effective is the Christ gift for us? Uh, this is one that Paul does tend to uh, perfect, uh, and uh, he shows that, in fact, it's very effective for us as it achieves the purposes for which God gave it, right, which is eventually salvation, uh, you know, and the rule of grace in our life and, and language like that that Paul uses to speak about it. Um, a fifth dimension, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's six, and I, I, there's one I always forget. Uh, yeah, you're right, the singularity. Very good, thank you. Uh, the singularity. Um, this, yeah. Uh, we, got, we have a John Barclay scholar here. Very good. Um, so, yeah, the singularity of the gift then refers to, um, to how, um, how oriented it is to, toward the pure good. That, like, you could give a gift um, that is singular in its orientation to do good for the other or something along those lines. Isn't that what he says about it? Something along those lines. Um, all right, uh, but uh, the last one then uh, is uh, what we might call uh, the reciprocal nature. Reciprocal, I don't know if I'm spelling that right, nature of a gift. And so we might, ten, we might tend to think that an ideal gift is one that comes with no strings attached. Like, what's the best possible gift I could give you? I give you the Ferrari and I, I ask nothing in exchange, right? And we tend to think that is what grace is. So we actually tended to, to connect these two uh, and to think that those, are, if we want to. S- think about how we think about grace. That's oftentimes what we do. Why? Partly because this was stressed in the Reformation era, especially by Calvin. This is a Reformation idea. Uh, Barclay argues that it actually emerges just before the time of Calvin, about 100 years before him, and that we never see it before that. Uh, So this is something that actually, this idea that the ideal gift is one that comes with no strings attached is something that is a more modern invention, or an invention that starts in uh, the late Middle Ages. Uh, so that actually before that time, nobody thought about gift-giving in that way. An ideal gift was actually one that you, uh, you actually receive and accept and give something back to show that you, uh, are, you deserve the gift and to show that you're grateful for the gift. And it doesn't actually have this idea of something that's unreciprocated attached to it at all. So you can, you can now, if the wheels are turning, if you've never heard this before, you can understand why Barclay is going to be so revolutionary and why this is so important. Why is this so important? Because then grace is not opposed to the Christ gift, and nor is our obedience opposed to it. What do we give back when the Lord Jesus gives us the Christ gift? What do we give back? We give back our allegiance to him, which includes within it an obedience of faith, right? That is like an embodied kind of loyalty that we give back to Jesus. So it's not opposed to works. It's not that we're earning our salvation. It's that we give back our loyalty to him as the great king to show that we've actually accepted the gift, right? And so it's the form of reciprocation 
And I would argue that this idea of, of the reciprocated nature of the gift certainly includes obedience in the New Testament. Uh, as Barclay, Barclay actually wrote an earlier study uh, before this, I think it was called The Obedience of Faith. Uh, it was a study of Galatians 5 that he wrote in the 80s or 90s or sometime before Paul and the gift, long time before it, uh, where, he, where he worked on these ideas in a preliminary way. And, he, and in that book, he showed that Paul consistently requires obedience for salvation. So he's trying to put together how this all works within the soteriology. And I think that's what pushed him really to do the study of grace. Um, so uh, I think this is an extremely important result here, this idea that the reciprocal nature of, of a gift is something that is not perfected by uh, that. Paul does demand that we reciprocate or thinks that in order to receive a gift, we have to give something back. It's not that you have to repay in kind. Uh, just like within a patron-client relationship, you didn't have to repay in kind. The, the patron, you know, he gives you money, right, uh, and you give him honor by showing up at his doorstep and greeting him in the morning. That's what they actually did in the ancient Roman world. You actually would show up at your patron's home and you would greet, greet him in the morning and tell him what a great guy you thought he was, and he would give you money, seriously. So... Um, yeah, but it, but you could see then you're you're uh, you're in a sense honoring him, right? That's uh, that's the pay. He's giving you money, but you're giving him honor back. And so this is a way of honoring Jesus, right? This part of the response is the allegiance response and the loyalty involves this idea of honoring him and obeying him as the as the great king. Um, questions on any of this? Sure. For only five? Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, um, Anselm's view is a view of satisfaction, and so the idea is that we've offended God um, and that we, we therefore need um, to have the, a God-man who can mediate. The only one who can make sufficient satisfaction must be a man, but must be God in order to make perfect satisf satisfaction because we've offended God and offended his sensibilities in some way. Uh, and so um, that would be Anselm's model, and we could, we could oppose it with a, a lot of different ideas, but I, I certainly have always favored the idea of, of a basic substitutionary atonement. I think that's the idea, and I think that there's a current strong push to evacuate the idea of of, of, of propitiation or of like the idea of a substitutionary atonement, as a lot of people don't want a wrathful God right now. The problem is, whenever you read Romans, right, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, right? The wrath of God is being revealed. And actually, if you read closely, uh, you might notice it's actually closely connected to the righteousness of God. As Paul talks about, he says, I'm not, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And actually, if you're reading in Greek, there's a sequence here of four clauses. It says, you know, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, uh, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed uh, from heaven. Uh, you know, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. And then it continues on, for the wrath of God is revealed. And we, we, we end up breaking that out in our English translations, right, as Paul's starting a new section there. Uh, is sort of in our mind, well, we've had the thesis statement, now we have a new section. It's actually probably not the case that this is a new section, as Paul's four clause shows, in fact, how the righteousness of God connects to the wrath of God. When Paul begins this whole sequence about talking about uh, you know, the righteousness of God somehow being revealed, and then he talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven, uh, that's probably actually connected to the righteousness of God. So when we begin to disconnect those things uh, and we don't see how wrath actually connects to the righteousness of God, uh, and I think that's one of the problems I have with Wright's view, is I don't think he sees that connection between wrath uh, and the righteousness of God, at least not in the right light. Um, as, as, if you understand it in terms of covenant faithfulness, you can deal with wrath, but it's in an entirely different way that doesn't connect with the atonement, I don't think, properly. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so...
How y'all doing? How, how are we doing for time? We're not doing very good for time. We got like five minutes. Um, well, I, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I had more of a, a programmatic talk that I was going to do that was more like a PowerPointish thing, uh, but I decided to just wing it uh, as I thought that might be. Especially if you have a smaller, intimate crowd, it's it's better, you know, as as we can have more of a conversation. Um, as we wrap up this conversation, though. Um, any conversation points, anything you want to say in response, any further questions you have for me? Um, I, could do a, I could do a really quick uh, on the kingdom of God. Um, when Jesus begins uh, uh, talking about the kingdom of God, it's actually paralleled with the gospel. Right? We have like the idea that Jesus went out and proclaimed the euangelion, the good news, uh, that the kingdom of God is drawn near. So the good news is really closely related to the kingdom. One of the problems that we have in a soteriological model, right, that emphasizes Jesus died for my sins, and that's the gospel, is, well, how does that connect to the kingdom of God then, right? We begin to get questions about that. Um, my response to that would be that, uh, in fact, uh, whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom of God drawing near, uh, that's an announcement of his eventual enthronement and the sequence that leads up to it. So the gospel actually has to do, uh, the gospel stories have to do uh, with Jesus' incarnation, right? He's born of the Virgin Mary, uh, and that he, he moves through the sequence of, uh, we, we find out that he's born into uh, the line of David. We find out that he, he lives a real life, that he's, that he's buried, uh, that he's raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We find these things in our gospels, and I think the gospels are designed to kind of move toward that climax of Jesus' enthronement or his ascension. I think we see it in a number of texts. So how do we make sense of the kingdom of God? Really, really quickly then, I would understand Jesus then to be the, um, to be the one who is, um, who is appointed by God from eternity as the Christ. Um, he's the son of God who will be the Christ, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, but he doesn't actually become the Christ functionally until he's actually anointed. That's his christening, right? His baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him at his baptism, this is when he actually becomes the Christ. He becomes the Messiah or the anointed Messiah at this time. So he actually functions as the Christ. And we would think about an analogy with King David here, that King David is anointed, and he is before he begins to rule. So also Jesus, the king, he doesn't actually rule yet, uh, the good news is breaking in around him. The kingdom is emerging around him in as much as he's the crown prince. But he hasn't begun to rule yet because he hasn't received his throne. And so it's when he's seated at the right hand of God that then he's appointed or he's installed as the king, and then he begins to rule properly. Uh, and so I think as we begin to nuance what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, and we pick apart the idea of him being, on the one hand, appointed as the Christ, on the other hand, uh, that he functionally becomes the Christ through his christening, and then he actually uh, is the, um, the empowered ruling Christ later on when he actually gains his throne, that we can begin to make sense of a lot of the already not yet tension that we find around the kingdom uh, and then also we can think about Jesus' ultimate return, right, which is also part of the gospel, too, uh, within this model. As he will return as the conquering king. If we want to add another dimension to his messiahship, that power will be exercised, right, as he will, as every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. Yeah, question? Uh, this is kind of a trick question, but beyond semantics, um, it's the kingdom of God. Why is there a usurper sitting on the throne? Hmm. Yeah, well, I think that we would want to say that God is always the eternal king. And I think that the, the, the metaphor that Scripture uses to help us to think about it would be that God hands us over to our own disobedience. You want to think about God driving the bus, right, of, of, of his sovereignty. 
you know, and, uh, and orchestrating all world affairs. Uh, and to a certain degree, God says, okay, uh, if you want to disobey, then I'm going to let the I'm going to let the consequences follow. I'm going to take the hands off the wheel and we'll just see where the bus goes. Um, so it's not that God doesn't know where the bus is going to go or doesn't still exercise sovereignty. The sovereignty does involve a certain kind of handing us over to our own disobedience. So as part of that, I would understand there to be other kinds of principalities and powers that we uh, have allowed to be enthroned, uh, partly through our own disobedience. So Romans 1, you know, obviously would speak about that whole sequence, right, of, of God handing us over. Yeah. The reason I ask is that that got a long discussion in a Bible study I teach uh, about the meaning of Trinity. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, this, uh, you're right. I mean, this, is, this gets us into really, really difficult. Uh, I didn't bring it up. Yeah. I mean, we really have to get into, um, into you know, how much of this is a, a metaphor and how we talk about metaphorical. I mean, it, it, I think that we can't really press behind the metaphors sometimes. Right, like we always want to. We want to press behind the metaphor, but with the end, we're given these metaphors by God, and and there's there is a mystery behind them, but we can't get to them. We can only get to them through the metaphors, right? So it's only as we bring multiple metaphors together that we can kind of get a trajectory toward as good a truth as we can get. But we still, at the end of the day, have to realize we can't finally press behind the metaphors to something behind them, as if there's some other meta narrative that we could get to, right? some other master story that we could find that would finally explain it all to us. This is the one God gives, right? And it's a story for a reason. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for your, your wonderful questions. And You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. That message was from TCM International Institute's track called Disciple Making Theology Matters at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.